go. Okay, uh, Hare Krishna, everybody. So, um, no. Oops. <laughs> Sorry about that. So, uh, we're going to, I, I'll, you won't use the royal we, I'm going to try to uh, answer some questions here, right? And then I, I heard that if I, if I give the right answers that uh, I can win valuable prizes. Is that correct? Okay, yes, absolutely. So. Mm -hmm. That's, that was the plan. <laughs> okay, so um, first of all, thank you all who are working in the school. It's, uh, it's the most noble service. In fact, I mean, Lord Krishna himself says, in, in many, many places in our literature that uh, you know, the highest service is done by the Brahmins. And that is certainly a uh, one of the most typical and important Brahminical services to teach, especially to teach the, the younger generation. So thank you all very much for your very valuable service. Um, just getting something out of the way here. So I'm going to address your questions and uh, <laughs> see if I can get the right answers. So the um, first question is, how can a temple and its community support a Krishna-centered school in their community? Well, that's easy. Uh, just there are certain basic things that any project or institution needs, such as money, uh, people volunteering their time to different services. Um, there's all kinds of services. It could be cutting the grass. It could be telling other families about the school. So maybe that they might be interested in sending their children there. It could be doing volunteer teaching. It's just everything the school needs. So, um, yeah, it, it takes a village to, uh, to raise a child as they say. So, um, yeah, so education really is a community project, although some devotees have the special service of actually being in the classroom or directly helping the schools or primary service. So, yeah, the community definitely requires community support. Number two, why were Gurukulas important to Srila Prabhupada? Uh, by the way, when the first Gurukula began in Dallas, I was a Grihasta temple president in, uh, in Houston. And so I used to, and, and the, uh, the main leader there, of course, was Satsarupa, who was my old friend from Boston. We actually traveled there. We lived in a van together for about a year and a half, uh, um, traveling around American preaching. So when he started a school in Dallas, I used to go up there. Uh, I mean, several times I went up there. So I kind of saw the birth of the first Guru Kula. And uh, of course, Mohanananda was the temple president in Dallas and he, he helped a lot. They, they were renting a beautiful house in Turtle Creek, I believe. So that was the first Guru Kula and I, I used to go and visit and see how they were developing it. So why, because, I mean, the Guru Kula has to be understood within Prabhupada's ultimate teleology, I mean, Prabhupada's ultimate purpose. Why did Prabhupada get on the boat? Or why did Prabhupada come to this planet at all? 
uh, it was just to, to spread Lord Chaitanya's movement. So clearly, uh, in fact, sociologists also say that one of the main indicators that a movement, a, a religious society or movement is, is healthy and will survive is the, uh, their ability to retain their own children. I saw a very interesting article actually today about what not to do. And that is that um, the evangelical Christians community are having serious trouble now because uh, they, you know, for their own purposes, because they wanted a conservative Supreme Court justices, they backed someone who in many ways unfortunately is a, well, to be honest, a despicable human being and uh, who's now the president. So, and so what's happening now is that they're losing their children. I don't just mean that, you know, the little kitties are like fleeing the nurseries or something. I mean, the next generation who are young adults or not so young adults. And they are, I read this very interesting interview with a uh, preacher who has a church somewhere in California. And he said he's worked his whole life trying to counteract the image that evangelical Christians are sort of cruel and insensitive. They don't care about people. They don't care about other races or groups. And uh, they're just, you know, just, you know, they're very religious, but not at all spiritual. And he said, it's like all the work I've done is just being undone now. And it's like, and he's even beginning to wonder if maybe the stereotypes were right. And this is actually an evangelical preacher. So, uh, so he said, there's like a, there's like that sound you hear is the rush to the door as a next generation. You know, the children of these evangelical evangelicals are just like fleeing the religion because they see the, uh, just the insufferable hypocrisy of supporting such a bad person. Not only that, you know, even if, of course, this is not on the topic, but I just have to throw this in, uh, that even if someone said they supported one of the most unchristian people in the country, because it was just like, you know, like a Faustian bargain, it's just, you know, you made a deal with the devil to get something you want. But the point is the Supreme, Supreme Court justices are already appointed. There's nothing more to gain. And yet they're still supporting this extremely unchristian person. So they're losing their kids. So it's interesting if you talk about, and then getting back to the question, why were Guru Kula so important to Prabhupada? Uh, I mean, clearly childhood impressions are extremely important. And um, if a child, I've seen it, we've all seen it, I mean, innumerable times, that when, when children learn to love Krishna or to believe in Krishna from their early childhood, they, they can never leave it. They're kind of like stuck with it. It's like having this little Vedic device implanted in your brain or something. And so, which is, I mean, even myself, for example, I've been a... Uh, a leader of the Hooray Krishna movement for quite a while. And uh, I still remember my parents and what I learned as a child. And of course, I hope I filter out the, uh, you know, the stuff that's not really appropriate for a spiritual life. 
But I was fortunate to grow up in a decent time when we had respect and we had manners and, and it was, now I just feel like I'm just, you know, beam me up, Krishna. There's no intelligent life down here, but so, yeah, I just feel like I'm, you know, planet of the apes now with all of the way the world is. So, so it is important. It was very important in my life. It made it, it made a very big difference in my life. And, and that wasn't, wasn't Krishna conscious, but it was, I learned a lot of values which are conducive to Krishna consciousness, which I think have helped me enormously. Not to speak of actually learning to love Krishna. When you're a child and your heart and mind are so open and that love of Krishna can just come flooding in and there's no resistance to it. Unless someone is just a, let's say, a determined asura that happened to take birth in a devotee family. But those cases are rare, fortunately. And so, you know, for almost all the kids, for almost all the kids, it's um, the experience of, of learning to, to accept Krishna as real and love him and make him the center of your life when you're, when you're a child like that. There's, it's something unique. I don't think any other process can provide that type of beautiful Krishna consciousness. So therefore, uh, having a, a Krishna conscious Guru Kula, which is managed by very good people, as this one is, very good devotees, is uh, it's invited, it saves souls. It saves souls. It, it, it provides eternal benefit. Number three, uh, Okay, I'm just make a joke about things like Jeopardy, like I choose a category here. No, okay, it's a question's already there. How do Krishna-centered schools impact the whole of Srila Prabhupada's movement? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say perhaps you get, of all the different ISKCON programs, perhaps you get the most, to use a crass capitalist metaphor, you get the most bang for your buck in the sense of um, we obviously don't have enough schools. And I think if, you know, ISKCON spent as much on schools as it did on rituals and lavish puja and everything, we probably, our movement would probably, probably be many, many miles farther down the road right now. So, um, yeah, so it's it's um, so the impact is um, I'd say you know so to speak pound for pound or prabhu for prabhu. I mean I can't think of a program which is more important, which gives so much and and actually takes so little. And um, it's inspiring to see all of you. I mean I feel like like in the Krishna book where Krishna praises the Brahmins. So I feel like I'm with the Brahmins now and I should, of course, if, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm also a Brahmin, I guess I should give you gifts and everything. But um, yeah, I, I think we need a lot more of it. I mean, we absolutely need more. I mean, anyway, I don't want to be sound like a heathen, although some people think, of course, I'm the anti-Krishna. But, but the fact is that um, if you just, if you just, 
did the numbers, you know, just do the math. How much has ISKCON spent on temples, including some of our very high profile temples in India? And this, how much has ISKCON actually spent for huge buildings that ultimately are for rituals? They're Krishna conscious rituals, and the deity is Krishna. We all know that. But how much has Krishna, how much has ISKCON spent on those rituals and temples, and how much on education? I mean, imagine if we spent like, like now temples being built for tens of millions of dollars. I mean, that could buy a lot of chalk and blackboards, but I mean, imagine, let's say if we spent tens of millions of dollars on education, we could have one of the absolute best educational systems in the world. And ironically, ironically, having great schools would impress intelligent Western people a thousand times more than huge temples. It's like in Europe, for example, they have all these amazing old cathedrals and churches and everyone goes to the tourists and, you know, no one's really religious, but they're fun to go to. It's good architecture. People don't surrender to architecture. They, they, they surrender to knowledge. So Prabhupada once said to me when I was, um, in 1974, he called me to his room and asked me to be GBC of Latin America. And then a day or two later, he just said to me privately, he said, for the more advanced devotees, for the more advanced devotees, there is knowledge, books, writing books, and, and, and teaching books. He said, let the others build temples and worship the deities. Now, this is not an attack on deity worship. This is not my latest deviation. Uh, I mean, obviously, we all know. I mean, I, I got something even more interesting I'm cooking up. But so, I mean, clearly, the deity is Krishna. We all know that in, in Nova and in, uh, New Goloka, you have very, very beautiful deities, and Krishna Priya sends me pictures of them. So, and, and we all know it's Krishna, it's God. So we go there and we bow down, we worship, and we save our souls. But the fact is that the emphasis, Prabhupada said this in many ways. He said that the temples are like, you know, the movement trains that run on two tracks, Bhagavad Vidhi, which means knowledge, learning the Bhagavatam, teaching the Bhagavatam to others, and uh, Pancharatrik Vidhi, which is deity worship. And he said they're both necessary, but the most important one is Bhagavad Vidhi. So here you have a direct to everyone's, you know, sometimes I just wonder, like, I don't remember signing up for a Twilight Zone movie, but, you know, everyone, everyone keeps saying that, you know, we have to keep Prabhupada in the center. Okay. What about Prabhupada's statement that the main thing is knowledge, education, and that's more important than the other track. And yet, Again, dollar for dollar, ISKCON probably gives a thousand percent at least, probably more. Maybe it's more like 10,000 percent more attention and resources to puja than it does to actually teaching people, including the people who have the first demand upon us, and that's our own children. So clearly here, there, there's still work to be done, which means that you know, I have controversies to look forward to, so there's no reason for me to be discouraged and think that I've gotten myself in trouble for the last time. So, but you know, but you know, someone someone has to say these things. 
So how is a Krishna-centered school relevant in modern times? Well, Krishna is God. Everyone is within Krishna. Krishna is within everyone. The perfection of everyone's life and, you know, in all the whole universe is to know Krishna. And so a school that's teaching the most fortunate people, etadhi durlabhatarang loke janma jadidrasham, Krishna says in chapter six, it is very hard to achieve in this world a birth to devotees or a birth in which you grow up in Krishna consciousness, go to a Krishna conscious school. Krishna says, etadhi, this indeed durlabhatarang, is very, very hard to achieve, literally, very, very. Won't go into all the grammar here. Etadhi durlabhatarang loke, in this world, janma, a birth, janidrasham, such as that. So Krishna personally certifies in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter six, that the most fortunate souls in the world are those who are going to the Gurukula. And since we are trying to train people to save this poor benighted planet, um, I can't think of a more important service than Gurukula. In fact, uh, actually, I wouldn't mind teaching myself if I could find time, but, you know, make me an offer I can't refuse. Uh, Ananda Leela not only handles communication, she's also my banking agent. Okay, so the next question is, so how is it relevant? It's, there's nothing more relevant. I mean, what could possibly be more relevant than training up the most fortunate souls to love Krishna and to help others to love Krishna, to infuse them with that spirit of charity, of mercy? And of course, the highest charity and mercy is the Sankirtan movement. So I can't think of anything more relevant because, of, I mean, I unfortunately follow the news. I know pretty well what's going on all around the world and it's uh, pretty awful. And so I think the only ultimately relevant thing is helping training people to, to give Krishna to this world. Um, what can a Krishna-centered school provide that is unique when compared to other schools, it can provide Krishna. And the definition of Maya is, you think Krishna's not there. In fact, there's a famous verse in the Bhagavatam, Bhayang dviti avini vesha tatsyat ishat apetasya viparya yosmriti. Let's see, I'll find the verse for you. Bhayang dviti. That's Bhagavatam 11.237, translated by a very good friend of mine. Uh, actually, by me. Let's see. Find that here. Find it better. Where Krishna is talking about the source of Bhayam. 11.237, I'll get one second. 11.237, database. Okay, here we go. 
Krishna says bhayam. Bhayam means fear. And uh, it also means danger, in that sense, anxiety. Because, I mean, arguably, even in terms of, let's say, psychology and everything, you could say that fear, that all anxiety is a kind of fear. Because what is anxiety? It's you're afraid something's not going to go the way it should go. You're afraid something bad's going to happen or something bad did happen and you're waiting for the bad news or that. So, I mean, baya, baya, fear or danger, it also means danger. Um, anxiety, just that fear and anxiety in life. And so Krishna says it has a source. There's a source of all anxiety. There's a source of all of our fear, which is dviti abhinivesataha. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, I don't know if Krishna's speaking here, actually, but dvitiya is the second ordinal number in Sanskrit, like first, second, third. So dvitiya means the second. And so it simply says, abhinivesha, uh, the verb, you're teachers, right? You can handle a little bit of grammar, right? You won't panic or anything. Okay, so the Sanskrit verb vish means to enter. In fact, a lot of people etymologize Vishnu from the verb vish, which means Vishnu who enters everything, who's all pervading. So uh, from the word vish, you get vesha, and then uh, nivesha means to enter within. In this case, nivesha, to enter within. And abhi is sort of like directly, not necessarily aggressively, but straight in. Like to go straight into something, like, or, or it's sometimes translated to be absorbed in something. And so all of our anxiety, all of it, all of our fear comes from becoming absorbed in a second reality. In other words, it's not Krishna. In thinking that there's something, anything, which is not Krishna. Or, as I would say, Krishna adjacent. In the sense of, like, for example, <laughs> we are, you know, we are spirit souls. And so, um, and Krishna says we're part of him. We are part of Krishna. Obviously, we're not God. Uh, but we are part of Krishna. And of course, we know from the Isopanishad, Purnamadak Purnamidang, Purnat Purnasyadaya, Purnameva Vashishta, even though we are part of Krishna, even though we are in that sense separate from Krishna, because we're not Krishna, but Krishna is still complete. Krishna is still complete and contains us, even though we are not Krishna. So that's a little uh, sort of transcendental physics for you. Purnasya, so you, from the Purna, from the complete whole, you take away the complete, from the complete, and yet Purnameva it remains complete. But still, and that's the Veda Veda, of course, that's the, the, the difference and non-difference. So, But if we think there is a second fundamental reality, there is something which fundamentally is not God in some way, that is the cause of all our anxiety. Because, and, and it, it's just the nature of real psychology that as soon as I want to enjoy something in this world, uh, the, the psychological precondition or prerequisite 
to enter that enjoying spirit is that I see it as separate from Krishna, as a second reality. Because obviously, if you really saw it as Krishna, you wouldn't lust after it. I mean, I don't think anyone that shameless. You'd have to be really insane, clinically insane to do that. And so, um, or aversion. Like for example, if Prabhupada is coming or if Prabhupada asked me to do something, I mean, this is practical. And Prabhupada was here and he would say, go do this or go do that. You would just go do it. I mean, we were so enthusiastic. There was no question of whether there was no, I mean, not whether we should do it, but like, was it cold or hot? Or uh, do I like this? Like Prabhupada, when Prabhupada told me to go to Latin America, the, I never thought, I don't know if I want to go to Latin America. So, you know, I just went. And so in that sense, uh, when you're in order not to just go and do your duty, you have to be thinking of something which is not Krishna. Like I could be happy if I live in a certain place, if I connect with a certain person, if people respect me in certain ways, regardless of whether Krishna is pleased, apart from Krishna as if, you know, apart from Krishna, uh, that'll make me happy. Or something, I'll be unhappy if I do something, even though Krishna wants me to do it. And so as soon as we fall into this material desire or aversion, we effectively, psychologically, have created in our minds the illusion that there is something which is not Krishna. And, and, and my happiness depends on that separate thing. And, and that's becoming absorbed in the second reality. And Ishada Petasya. And the person who does that is Ishada Peta. Ishat means from the Lord, Isha. That's the ablative form. Uh, for a slight additional fee, I will explain the grammar of all these words. I don't know if you signed up for that plan. The, Grammar plus plan. Anyway, so ishat means from the Lord and apeta, apa means away. And which we, which actually comes down to us from Greek as in the word apocalypse, which means taking away the covering, the apocalypse. It's like, that's what the apocalypse is literally when the cover is removed and human beings see how really hideous they are without God. So um, so an ita means gone. If any of you know Spanish, anyone know Spanish here? Okay. Do I hear two? Do I hear three? No. Okay. So in Spanish and in Spanish and, and Italian and Portuguese, all those languages, the verb e means to go, like ir, and so that's Sanskrit. So ita means gone. I won't go into all the historical linguistics, which I find very interesting. Even the ta is from Sanskrit, and ita, gone. But anyway, um, like for example, krita means done, like drishta, seen, or krita. So the ta makes it the past passive participle. So ita in Spanish or Portuguese uh, means gone, and apa, away, gone away, apeta. So one has gone away, ishad, from the Lord. One has gone, literally gone away from the Lord. And everything is just 
backwards, gets everything backwards. Asmriti, and one does not remember. The way you say forget in Sanskrit is you disremember. So asmriti, no memory. And if you know your Bhagavad Gita, you know smriti prangshat buddhi nasho. As soon as smriti, memory is lost, intelligence is finished. You no longer have the power to reason. So a, because what would you reason about? You can't remember categories. You can't remember causal chains. You, you have no basis on which to reason because you can't remember. So anyway, ishada peitasiripariyo smriti, and then and then tanmayayato buddhavajetam. And then that happens by Krishna's maya, but being intelligent, one should worship him, the Lord. And then by pure devotion, uh, one should worship the Lord and then uh, everything is fixed. And one should be Guru Devat Atma. Uh, one should take the deity and the guru as like one's very self. So that's the basic message actually we're teaching the kids, isn't it? So anyway, uh, getting back to your questions. Um, so yeah, what can a Krishna conscious, Krishna-centered school provide uh, reality? It can provide reality. It can provide sanity. It can provide liberation from all suffering. It can provide, it can empower the students to save the planet. I mean, that's pretty good for starters. So yeah, it like you can provide the most valuable things in the world. So then um, what are the most important qualities a child can develop in Guru Kula to empower them to become meaningful members of society and our movement? Well, I hope you're teaching them that whenever they see me, when they grow up, they give me as much money as they possibly can. I mean, I hope you've taught them that. Anyway, just kidding. So, um, you know, you really got to teach, you know, have my picture there. And so they make that association. As soon as they see me, they. <laughs> so um, qualities, I would say, um, as we know, the more we become Krishna conscious, the more we develop all the qualities. So, and Prabhupada was once asked, how do you know who's really a devotee and Prabhupada said, he's a perfect gentleman. And of course for lady, I mean, ladies are not required to be perfect gentlemen, but they should be, they should be perfect ladies. And uh, this is something which is, um, if I can use a, you know, sort of a somewhat colloquial expression to be a class act in the sense of to have good manners, to be, not to be vulgar, to be, to respect that which should be respected, to be able to make relevant distinctions, to be intelligent, to be able to reason and to love Krishna above all. So um, I think it's good for the teachers in the school to sort of have an image in their mind of, um, that we're creating these sort of like uber prabhus. You know, we're um, 
to really create a superior class of people who are cultured, who are have good manners, who who see Krishna in everything, and who are intelligent, who have the ability to reason, not just, you know, have they memorized our doctrine yet, but to not only teach them what the truth is about Krishna, but also show them how you can reason your way to that and how everything is pointing toward Krishna. Krishna says in the Gita, Jyomang Pashyati Sarvatra, one who sees me everywhere. And that means seeing Krishna in biology and geography and history and philosophy and science. Because every word is not just a geographic reference. It means also in, in every dimension of conscious life to see Krishna there. One who sees me everywhere, one who sees everything in me. To, so, that, so the child thinks when they grow up that whatever I do, whatever I do in life, it's by Krishna's mercy and it's, it's within Krishna. And so I have to use my life, whatever life I create for myself, I have to use for Krishna. I think that's a real lesson. And just to be a classy person, not to be a slob or vulgar, just in other words, not to be a normal person nowadays. I mean, we live in an age when, I mean, there actually is a, a very large number of Americans who, who are not aware that it's grammatically possible to complete an English sentence without the F word. So it actually is possible grammatically to do that. So yes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know, have them read Prabhupada's books and uh, of course, Jane Austen. I mean, that'll do it. Watch Jane Austen movies. <laughs> so, um, let's see, how would you address the issue of death with a five-year-old asking questions about it? Uh, I would think I would treat that five-year-old as a, an eternal soul in a five-year-old body. And I would give the child credit for being a soul and for having deep spiritual knowledge within them. And I think, you know, in, in the kindest, most considerate way possible, I would tell them the truth. Children have a sixth sense for picking out falseness, you know, something's fake. They just, they just know that. I mean, I remember when I was just a little kid, you know, let's say you're a little kid, you're a little kid, your parents take you to some event, there's all kinds of adults there. I mean, if someone's fake, you know it in one second, isn't it? I mean, you just know it. You know who the fake people are and or someone says something you don't really mean it. So I think uh, give the even a five-year-old the respect of being an eternal soul and of being a very special eternal soul because they're connected with what you're doing. So uh, those are the questions. Are there any other questions? Yeah, hi Krishna. I had one. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Well, it's a pleasure because it's kind of like what I really wish I was doing, you know, just being a simple teacher and uh, not, because as you can imagine my position, I've got like, so many things to worry about. I can't dump them all on Ananda Leela. So, 
Oh, I actually have to deal with one of them myself. So, yeah, so actually that's kind of like my secret little fantasy, you know, that I could just be a, a teacher. <laughs> well, we would hire you for sure. <laughs> um, I actually had a question um, within our staff, um, especially Kala and I, we often talk about um, this idea of insulating and isolating. Um, so insulating being, you know, the children, you know, they interact with the world and the parents, the teachers, the guides are there to kind of help them process in a Krishna conscious way, the things that they're seeing and experiencing and the things that just happen in the world. And then isolating, I'm, you know, <laughs> that's um, more trying to avoid being in. Oh yeah, that doesn't work. The word I use is vaccinating. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the kids, they have hear to hear your thoughts on those two. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, approaches because people swing like, no, you know, like, no, all my kids around there's anything an like this. And then the whole an other side, you know, obvious truth of the matter. Which, you know, I'm not, when it comes to Guru Kula, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And uh, the thing is, the children will grow up and you have to teach them to deal with the world. Obviously, in measured doses. I mean, clearly you don't want to, you know, kill them with medicine. But in measured doses, you have to teach them. Like, for example, you know, the, the obvious things, take them out on... Um, what do you call? What do you call? My God, my English. I have to give class so many language. A uh, an outing, just an outing. You know, seeing the world and explain. This is what it is. That's what it is. Or you know, watching appropriate movies or reading appropriate books, and then teach because you know it's right there in the Isopanishad. Vidyang cha vidyang cha jas tad vedo bhayang saha avidya mrityung tirtwa vidya mrita That knowledge of both the material world and the spiritual world. One has to know both. And avidyaya, amazingly enough, it is by knowledge of the material world that one crosses over death. Avidyaya, mrityung tirtwa, vidyaya, and by knowledge of the spiritual, amritam ashnute, one enjoys immortality for one achieves immortality. So it's right there on the Isopanishad. So yeah, the anti-vaxxers, uh, I guess they'll never learn because, I mean, we tried that in the past and then the kids went out and they were just like cannon fodder. You know, they would they would go to Guru Kula and then they had no, they had no antibodies. They had no like material antibodies. That's what happened in Mexico when the Spanish came you know, the local people, the Aztecs and Toltecas and Mayas and everything, they didn't have any antibodies and they just, they died by millions. By the millions. And so it's already been tried. It, it was a catastrophic failure. And it's amazing, the debate, people are sort of blind to history. The uh, German philosopher Hegel, who's, you know, the famous philosopher of history, he said that that, you know, every century or every generation forgets all the lessons of the past generation. They think they're better than anyone that came before them. And 
So how can we not learn from that catastrophic mistake? So yeah, your job is to vaccinate them, not isolate them. And then let's see, Sita, you had a question. Oh, your mic? Well, I actually had a comment. I have three adult children that were born and raised in the movement and two of them went all through Gurukula for, for the most part. And they're <laughs> devotees today and they have faith. And I asked them, I wasn't the strictest, most fixed up devotee all those years, but I asked them, how is it that you still have faith and that you're you know, a devotee and you believe this philosophy? And they said it was because they had they went to the Gurukula and had association of other devotee children who they had have good relationships with that they still maintain. So they had their peer support. And they said, because I didn't cram it down their throat <laughs> and I raised them with love and affection. So those three things I attribute to the fact that my two older children are yeah, that's, that's favorable to Krishna consciousness. Hold just one second. I'm going to get a throat lozenge, which I will not charge you, even though it's directly. Get a what? <laughs> a throat lozenge. I'm just going to get a little. Lozenge. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, here we go. So, uh, anything else? No, I just wanted to say about that. Okay. Uh, Neela? Oh, your microphone? Sorry. It's so nice to see you again. Hey, and, uh, <laughs> I feel so it? inspired, especially with all the grammar. <laughs> Neela, is that the Neela? This is Bluey. <laughs> oh my God. I was thinking, could I be that fortunate that it's Bluey? <laughs> I, mean, pleasure, I could I could recite my question in full Indian accent. <laughs> I need to do that. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to ask if you could uh, just offer some further comments on the Vidya and Avidya side-by-side uh, -side learning the, the spiritual knowledge and the material knowledge because uh, it just seems like there's only so many hours in the school day and we have these gurukulas that didn't teach any material knowledge and very, uh, I personally know Gurukula graduates who are very resentful that they didn't learn anything uh, that was useful to them in their material life. And uh, I also know like children who are born to devotee parents who just don't know anything about Krishna consciousness, like barely anything, barely anything. And uh, because they're just going to regular schools or even even children who are going to some kind of a devotional school, but it's not so focused on the on our philosophy. And there, there's some 
Krishna conscious teachers, but they're, they're focusing on like a first class material education. Um, I feel silly for speaking in Indian accent. <laughs> just for your, just for your humor. Um, their, their focus on a, just, I, I just want to ask if you could uh, comment a little bit more on um, some insight of how to balance uh, these two realms of knowledge side by side. Neela, when I, I, I can't help saying, when I was teaching at the University of Florida, Neela's in my class. She's such a wonderful young lady. I thought that was you, but I saw Hargraves and I didn't know. Oh yeah, I'm. Uh, I I got married shortly after. Yeah, I know. So that's why when I saw Harg, I didn't want to say anything. But yeah, Neela, <laughs> we are we are old friends, very good friends. <laughs> I Where saw two students of that class become devotees, or uh, maybe it was two, at least one. Just oh just from just from uh, learning about. Uh, intro to Hinduism was the class, I think, or is Hindu Hindu texts? Well, it's actually no, I didn't use the H word. It was actually oh. uh, it was actually history of Indian religion. Okay, okay, and uh, she was she was so fascinated. Um, she joined the Krishna House and everything. Oh my, oh my. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of shakti, you know, even even without the the direct preaching. Um, just presenting for, in, an, in an academic way, uh, she became so attracted. Yeah, Neela, she, we were, Neela's like my, my buddy there when I was teaching. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so regarding your question, um, people are different. And for example, you know, I'm so-called leader in Krishna consciousness. And I wasn't born devotee family, although I had a very, you know, very wonderful, loving parents. But so it's like nature and nurture. I mean, nurture can do so much. And then uh, we bring things to this world. So, um, so I would say in general, on average, we definitely do better with like children getting a spiritual education but it's not deterministic because you, you can't just program people. Some people are born in devotee families and go to guru kulas and, and they're, you know, they just may not be there yet. Mm -hmm. So it's, so we're talking about percentages rather than absolute numbers. I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking is like, how, how do we, what you know what what is it our responsibility to, to teach and how do, how do we um you know it, it seems like there's either a focus on yeah i oh, oh you're talking about like yeah. curriculum yeah yeah um, to me they are um they're really connected Mm -hmm. Just reminds the sound of music. Do a deer, a female deer, ray a drop of only. So, so it's like teaching about the world, but also doing learning music. So yeah. I, can give, I can give that sound of music example. So, um, because really, to me, every subject is just Krishna. Mm -hmm. 
not artificially, but um, yeah, it's just, it's, so I think the two most important things for the teacher, one thing is really care about the students. I know when, you know, when we were younger, I know when I was in school, I mean, kids really know which teachers care about them. They really care about them. And if you know their teacher really cares about you, that's so powerful. I still remember, I mean, we're talking about things that happened, you know, over 65 years ago, but I remember very well. I remember very, very well, which teachers really cared about me. Personally, who cared about me personally, that was very important. And um, yeah, and to be not, not just, the, I think the worst kind of Krishna conscious teaching is just like shoving doctrine into people's heads. Like this is our, you know what I mean? This is our doctrine, not really thinking. And I, I know I have to deal with it all the time. You know, some leaders of the movement who think it's like subversive to think. So, I mean, seriously, like if you just, if you really think, so I think the more, I'd say the more the teachers care about the students and the more they are intellectually alive. In other words, I, I think that obviously the, a good teacher has to be someone who's personally excited about knowledge and discovering things. And in the course of, it's not just like I've taught this 50 times, I wish I was somewhere else right now, but it's, but in, in, in the act of teaching, you're seeing, you're having new insights. It's just like Prabhupada said one time that, um, he said you should give, have the Bhagavatam class every day. And he said, every day there'll be new lights. That was Prabhupada's expression every day. I remember that, that was like very famous when he said it. Every day there'll be new lights. So I know when I gave the class on India that you were at, I mean, I, as you know, I was like really enthusiastic. I was like, I was really enjoying like discovering all these things and figuring out what it means. And so I think the teacher should not just give like a doctrinal answer, like how is this related to Krishna? Krishna made it. Next question. <laughs> but I, I, I think the teachers have to be intellectually alive. Like we're learning about geography. How is that related to Krishna? Not just Krishna made it. Shut up and read your book. But it's, it's really, you know, how did Krishna make the world? And, and how is it that Krishna made a planet with different mountains with natural barriers, which of course no longer really are important, but that for many years, people couldn't really communicate with each other because there were mountains, there were oceans or very wide rivers. There were these natural topographical boundaries. And so people spoke different languages and they developed different ideas about what God is. And now, of course, we fly over the mountains and we fly over the oceans. And what effect is that having on the world? And so, like, to me, if I just think of teaching geography, it's like fascinating. If you really think about it, isn't it? So, so I think the teachers have to be intellectually alive. And, and just, you have to like people. You, you have to be interested in the world. You have to really... Get, be excited about learning because if the teacher is not excited about learning, it's not enough to be excited about teaching. You have to be excited about learning. And so if you have a teacher who's just excited about all these amazing things and connections and, and how does it relate to Krishna? 
I mean, actually think about that. Then if you have a teacher that cares about you and is excited about knowledge, you'll never forget that class for the rest of your life. Thank you. Hey, Neela, we have to talk someday. Sure. <laughs> Bluey, because the word, the word Neela means blue in Sanskrit. Like, like Neelachala. Achala means unmoving. It's a word for mountain, Achala. Sanskrit's really funny, actually. It's like ka means sky. So a bird is called a kaga, a sky goer. And a fish is a uh, jalaga. It's like a, fish, a water goer. And then a, and a tree is called a naga, a no-go. <laughs> That's literally what it means, a no-go. Oh, I just got a message here. Oh, Kala. Sorry, Kala, go ahead, jump in. Uh, microphone. There you go. Hi, Krishna Maharaj. Thank you. Hola. Um, hola. Uh, so as you may know, our our school, it's in the name community school. We really focus on developing community and, you know, just relationships as one of the core principles of our school. Um, and as part of that is developing, you know, qualities as we were talking about earlier. Um, and I often um, think about um, with my own children who are also in the school, um, you know, I, I often go back and forth as to how to teach them about kindness and compassion, uh, not only towards the children that, that they are interacting with in their school, but also with children that are practicing other religions or maybe having different dietary, you know, you know, they're not vegetarians, you know, and sometimes children are very black and white and they need that black and whiteness to kind of understand with clarity yeah. right. uh, this, the importance of these principles. And um, sometimes I go back and forth as to like the isolating, insulating type thing. Well, I like, I like the expression, um, good fences make good neighbors. Hmm. And so um, if the kids have really strong boundaries, then it's safe for them to reach out to other people. So you can't give them just outreach without boundaries or boundaries without outreach. So I think that's really, that's, that's one of those nice old proverbs that uh, just, you know, good fences make good neighbors. And so uh, make sure the fences are strong and make sure the, the, the being a good neighbor is strong. And explain to them, and I would explain to them, I really, I'm in favor of, you know, treating children like, you know, with almost like you say with intellectual respect. I mean, I mean, of course, they're children and, and we, you know, they're not adults, they're children. But at the same time, in fact, I saw this study that the reason that uh, children that come from better educated parents tend to do much better in school, apart from the cool genes they may get, 
But another reason is that as they're growing up, they are hearing a much, much larger vocabulary. And it just makes them intelligent. They're hearing, it's not like, hey, you know, well, I won't imitate the way uh, certain people talk. But I mean, they're hearing, you know, good vocabulary, the parents reason with them. They, they, they grow up in an atmosphere where you do things because it's the right thing to do. And there are good reasons that make it the right thing to do. And uh, so I think that's a discussion to be interesting to have to explain to the children why we are good neighbors because they're also part of Krishna and why there are good fences. So I'm all in favor, of course, they're children, they're not adults, but I'm all in favor of taking the time to explain things to the kids. Yeah, sometimes um, with the voc vocabulary that we define, it makes a big difference, you know? Because there, are, sometimes, you know, when, when we go down the road of evilizing the people that choose another path or another choice of, you know, being a vegetarian or not being a vegetarian, like, you know, like that's, it's, they're in, in their path, in their own path. Yeah, but, I mean? but, but, but it's still wrong. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I don't think we should, you know, pretend that reality is relative. I, I think there's a way to compassionately, empathetically see that someone's actually doing something wrong. And there's, it, it's, it's not that it's, it's, um, yeah, like not part, you know, participating in the brutal massacre of innocent creatures or participating in it. They're kind of the same, just, you know, people have different paths. I mean, some things are really evil. I would, I would tell them, you know, the kids aren't evil. I mean, the, those people aren't evil. They're just, and I would tell them, you know, there was a time when you didn't know these things either because it's a special blessing from Krishna when he opens your eyes and shows you. So we, you know, we used to be in that situation, maybe I don't know how many births ago or something when, when we also didn't know. So if you see somebody that has a problem, you want to help them, not just kick them. And so I, I think, you know, there's a way to teach them to be, to care about other people, to act respectfully without giving them the false impression that there's no difference between right and wrong. You know, children absolutely need, I remember when I was a kid, my mother, you know, she always uh, promoted education. She would like buy books for us and everything. And she was really into education. And she, uh, she subscribed to this like boys magazine for me. I think it was called Boys Life. It was I don't think it was the Boy Scouts, but it was like some real decent thing. They put out this magazine called Boy's Life or something for kids. And we used to give it when I was like nine, 10, 11 years old. I remember one of my favorite sections, I was just sort of was drawn to it. In every issue, I guess it came out monthly, in every issue, they would have these two facing pages. There was one good boy, and then the boy who wasn't good, I forget their names were. And like the good boy does this, you know, the, the other boy does that. And, and it like sort of mirror opposites of each other. And I remember I was just drawn to that. It really was very meaningful for me. 
and I really I took it very seriously. So you know, right, right and wrong. So teaching them a type of moral relativism is a good way to ruin a child. But you know, it's, but they they can learn that, and they can also learn to be compassionate and respectful. Yeah, thank you. Any other question? Neela. I, I was just gonna say, uh, hearing uh, hearing the, the good fences and the good neighbors, uh, it, and this comes up with my kids as well, because they're, um, they're very passionate about veg being vegetarian. And, and I had an experiment where I, I, I thought I'm, I'm never going to tell them that we're not allowed to eat meat. Um, but you know, we just, we just don't. And they ask about what is that? And it's, it's animals that were killed for, for people to eat and they're, and they're, they've taken it on themselves. So it made me think that perhaps the way to interact with those who, you know, do something wrong, like you're saying is uh, to explain to kids that, if, if we're rude to them about the, that thing that they're doing that's wrong, uh, they'll, they'll just feel bad and they won't wanna be our friend or, or hang out with us. It won't inspire them to do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. And I, yeah, and I would tell just, yeah, and I would tell them that, you know, their parents have raised them this way. And so if you tell them their parents did a bad thing, that's gonna hurt them very much. Yeah. Because, yeah, because, but, because they love their parents. Yeah. So, so just being polite and saying, well, this is what we do, um, can inspire a friend to, to think, well, wow, that my friend doesn't eat meat. Maybe, you know, that's an option of how to live. That in yeah, itself. The parents, but yeah, yeah. If you explain like why we don't eat meat, of course, then, you know, they come home and they, and they tell their parents, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> my friend in school said that, you know, we shouldn't, we, they don't eat because we shouldn't kill the animals and everything. So it's, it's it's a it's it's a little. I mean, the point is that um, they're just different classes of people. Like now, everyone's saying equality, and there should be equality of justice, equality of rights, and all that. But people aren't the same. Krishna says that some people are shudras, some people are vaishas, some people are suras, some people are godly people. So people actually, you know, they're different. They have different backgrounds, past lives. And uh, yeah, so we teach the kids that everyone is part of Krishna. Everyone is an eternal soul. But some of them are just, um, you know, they, have, they just haven't remembered yet. So we have to be patient. And then someday they'll remember. Please. I have another question. <laughs> hey, didn't, didn't you oh. used to ask questions a lot? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's okay. This is, my, this is my last one. Um, do you have any advice for teachers in uh, how to command respect in a classroom? What did I do? I was just so intense. I don't think anyone ever was on their cell phone or, I mean, I was just, I was just like so much into it and looking at them and but um, as far as discipline, probably you guys know that. There's books about it and everything. I'm afraid to venture into that one, but I think probably, probably you guys know that more than me. 
Oh, Daria, did you did you have something you wanted to ask? Um, well, it was the a comment of your response. Um, I just um, what you had said about um, that regarding meat eating or whatever it is that the the children might see, and they have that kind of distinction of right and wrong. And I, what you said really resonated with me about how we were in that place at one point and Krishna's really blessed us with the knowledge. And um, often I respond, my daughter is four and she's, she once told movers like you should not eat meat. She didn't know them. They just were packing our kitchen and she like walked this was she must have been three. She was like, you shouldn't eat meat. She just like lasered in on this guy and he was like, okay, I um <laughs> but he's like uh and she's so innocent looking with and she looks very like cherub-like and I, I think it he was he might have gone home and become a vegetarian. I don't know. But um <laughs> But what you said resonated with me because I often explain to her, you know, that they, these people, they might not know, you know, they just, it's, you don't know something if you don't know something, you know, there's, and there's a lot of things that she doesn't know yet. And when she learns it, she can like keep it with her and know that moving forward. So I just wanted to tell you that I appreciated that response because I see that that's something where she can have um, compassion for someone else while also understanding, well, now I, I know better than to do that, you know, and you can't go back, you know, you can't, I mean, I suppose you could, but not in devotional service, you can't really go back, you keep it forever, so. Yeah, that's very true, yeah, just stress to the kids like how fortunate you are that that because you know you had love of krishna inside of you therefore you have the special knowledge yeah and it's really a mood of gratitude rather than a mood of condemning someone else being like oh my gosh i'm so grateful um that yeah, yes. krishna is getting so you specifically said that krishna uh blessed us um, for opening our eyes and I was just like oh that's such a grateful mood to instill in them and it's gratitude instead of judgment and gratitude yeah. and like humility instead of condemning so I just I really appreciated that oh yeah I appreciate what you said so anything else yes Demon. One, <laughs> one last question um you know, when when we think about uh, Gurukulas from, you know, back in India a long time ago, we see this image of like a guru with his disciples. And there's a certain mood of reverence and respect that is, um, that is beautiful. And it probably comes also from a very qualified teacher and qualified students, you know, and... Um, I'm thinking that it might be uh, a little difficult to replicate that over here completely, um, but it's it's a it's um it's a beautiful image to replicate in some parts. It is, it, and to some extent, it's an idealized version. Um, the Guru Kula 
the teachers were mostly grihastas. And so it was literally, you know, man and woman. Actually, Jane Austen's parents did this. Her father took in, <laughs> yeah, actually her father took in students. He was a priest, but I mean, you know, teacher. And so, um, so in the Gurukulas, uh, the young people would come and live in the Griya, in, in a house. It was a house, usually with a husband and wife. And, um, and they would take care of the kids and teach them. So, um, and of course they were very respectful and, and, but they were real people, you know, it was it just like sometimes there was some tension or, in fact, there's even, I mean, well, I don't want to get um, kind of grisly here, but there's even a famous, like an injunction that pops up here and there in different Shastras that that a student should not be guru telpaka, which literally means don't go to the guru's bed. In other words, don't get involved with the guru's wife, because you can imagine if you have, let's say, a young Brahmin and his wife, and then you have maybe a 16-year-old student or something, some good-looking guy, or so maybe he's like a prince. And so there's actually injunctions like warning against hanky-panky, as they say, between... And so, you know, we use the word guru, but but it was like, it was like an elementary school. And then of course, the, the, some students would stay on longer. They would, you know, there were different schools. So yeah, there's this idealized version of the perfect submission of the student and the ideal character of the guru. And in the real world, I mean, there was that culture and it was, you know, Asian culture in general is much more uh, reverential, which is something that, I mean, even Alexander, when he went into, you know, conquer the Persian empire, he was, all the Greeks were struck by, you know, there was a real cultural difference that Asia, the East was more reverential and the West was more individualistic, even two and a half thousand years ago. And there are, frankly, there's advantages in both. And there, there are problems with both. Like to give you an example of a problem, when um, when that terrible charlatan was finally exposed at uh, Sai Baba, and turned out that he was a sort of a flagrant, um, well, he was a gay pedophile, and doing sort of carnival tricks, carnival tricks, you know, produce things, and it was, and it, it was a huge scandal. So when that scandal came out. Some people stayed with him, but interestingly, um, most of his Western followers left because, like, you know, it's horrible. But in India, he didn't lose as many people. And so, I mean, of course, there's exceptions. It wasn't like 100% and 0%. But, and so there's, you know, almost, an, you know, just an incredible amount of cheating and, and bogus gurus and everything. And so, when you have that kind of steep hierarchy and sort of unquestioning obedience, <clears throat> it has a dark side. It has a dark side. And so, and so I think, and that's why India has one of the highest rates in the world of child abuse. One of the highest rates of child abuse in the world. And so, I kind of, I don't really, 
embrace this idea that you know India has all the culture and we have I mean they did at one point and and to be honest if you look at the actual Vedic culture not the Hindu Muslim culture you look at like the older texts it's not like you know what you may think in terms of the role of women I'm just gonna just give one quick little example the Mahabharata uh they always had vacation spots. They had resort areas. Uh, for the people in Dwarka, the resort area was Raivataka Mountain. And for the, from the Pandavas were at Indra Prasta, the resort area was down by the Jamuna River. They had this vacation area. So one time Krishna was there and it was summer and it was hot. So they, you know, let's just go on a little vacation down the river resort. And so they went down there and it's described they had different activities. And by the way, they had stage shows also. Like when when the Yadus went to Rivataka for a vacation, they actually had a stage show, and it's actually it's mentioned in the Malabar. They had comedians, singers, dancers. It was just like it was like the Ed Sullivan show or something. It was, I mean, they really, they really had a stage show, and Krishna was there. And then, so when the Pandavas took Krishna for a vacation, uh, it's mentioned they had a wrestling tournament. And what's really interesting about it, it was a wrestling tournament for the ladies. And I mean, so there were all kinds of things going on. Back then, this idea of like the, you know, like shut up and get pregnant. You know, it's interesting, like, um, like for example, the Mahabharata, famous scene where the five Pandas have been born and Sort of like for Kshatra, the ultimate collectible is to have sons. And so Pandu wants to have more sons and he approaches Kunti. Kunti says, are you serious? You know, I mean, do you want me to just, you know, have a child with every, every deva in, the, in, in heaven? And so she's like, she's like, what are people, what my reputation? And so, and so Pandu, it's very interesting because Pandu says, whether a man is right or wrong, his wife has to follow him. But that's not what happens. He says that, and she just says, no way. And she gives her argument, and he gets, as they say, you know, you know the man always gets the last word. Yes, dear. So, <laughs> but what's very interesting is that he, he quotes this proverb to her, but they don't follow it. He actually does what she wants. Or for example, um, Sudama Brahmana, where his wife says, go to Krishna and ask for him to help us. She says, thank, you know, sorry, but I don't really want to go. And she says, you're going. <laughs> and he, in other words, they were real people, sort of like a typical marriage. So, so you know, this idea, so we have all these stereotypical images, or, or for example, the wives, you know, the Dwija Putni Gun, the, um, the wives of the Brahmins, where it's very interesting because every conceivable male authority figure tells them not to go. Their husbands, their, you know, grown sons, brothers, you name it. You know, everyone, fathers, everyone tells them not to go and they go. So I'm not preaching here, yeah, women should never follow their husband. I'm just saying they were real people and they had real relationships. And you find in the Vedas, for example, there were ladies, sages who 
And there were kings, there were important kings that surrendered to women gurus and sat at their feet and learned the Vedas. Just like in the modern world, uh, there are women who are university professors. And so my impression, the impression I get, in, in, if you don't just read the, you know, Amar Chitra Kata, and if you, do, if you don't just read Hindu comic books and, and, and all the abridged versions of everything, if you actually read it, uh, the ancient, the real Vedic culture was in some ways like ours. And these are real people. They were real people. And so, um, I don't even know how I got into that. Oh, so I know, like, like the idealized version of, for example, the Mahabharata, you have, you know, disciples cursing their gurus, or, or no, the guru, like Kalmashapad, which means stained foot, because he had a stain on his foot, like a more, so he's, you know, like, like stained foot Maharaj. So something happened and his guru cursed him, so he just counter-cursed him. Why you... <laughs> Why no good, low down. So, I mean, you, you know, good, and 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 there were times when this, you know, idyllic, when the Brahmin Kshetra relationship broke out into warfare, because these are the two most powerful castes. One famous case is uh, axe pleasure. You know, Lord Parashuram. That's what his name means. You know, axe pleasure. You know, <laughs> pleasure. And so, it's almost like it's almost like the Vedic version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or something. <laughs> anyway, you have Parshuram killing the Kshatriyas. But then there's the case of the sage Orva, where you have a case where the Kshatriyas killed the sages because they were hoarding the money. They were hoarding gold during, during a time of, of drought. And so most of the time, so you, you get this very nice picture, which actually was the standard. It was the, you know, a lot of the time, it, you know, it functioned normally, but, but it was, uh, wasn't always like that. In terms of the role of women, when, when Arjun and, you know, they say that, you know, Arjun kidnapped Subhadra, actually they eloped. That's really the word, they eloped. And um, it turned out as they were, you know, getting out of Dwarak alive, they had to, you know, get out of Dorka before sundown. So it was, um, it turned out that Subhadra, one of her skills was she was expert at driving a war chariot. She just happened to know that. And so, um, yeah, it was very interesting. When, when you study the real Vedic culture, I think it was much more like us. I mean, not in the degraded ways, but in different ways, it was more like us then let's say what well, people take as Hindu culture. So I, I find that in, that's why, anyway, it's one of my, um, it's one of my deviations. I, I have a whole portfolio. Of <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like in a way you're saying like that it's really relationship driven. It's not like this box of you fit in here, you fit in here, but there's actually like relationships happening and people have like, even them yeah. had different, you know, things they're working through and those obviously clash. They're real people. They're real people. They're like us. I mean, obviously in some ways they're very elevated, but in other ways they're just real people like us. 
And that's why, that's kind of what's driving my work on the Mahabharata was coming out one amazingly well. Like I'm amazed what Krishna's revealing to me about it. I mean, it's not like anything you've ever seen. It's not like anything I've ever seen. One thing is I'm going into the backstory very heavily because even the Mahabharata says that, it's funny because the book is so big, even back 5,000 years ago, they had all these like a 